Hello, this is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. This is season two of Tales of, and the fourth episode takes us into the lost world of Austin's fabulous blues revival of the 1970s and 80s. But it's a look at the underside, starring Austin's greatest fallen hero. Let me tell you about it. But just one thing before I do. The great Austin blues bassist, Keith Ferguson, who passed away at 50 years old in 1997, cynically told me this on his front porch. I have to admit, there's a guaranteed future in Dirty Dishes, which there ain't in blues. I seem to be the only one who regards himself as a professional musician. Our lead singer's a dishwasher in the back of some restaurant. If he put half the energy into booking our band that he puts into scrubbing dishes, we'd be farting through silk. But he'd rather do dishes. Austin's once reigning blues bassist was cynical and had every reason to be paranoid. I've found that most things are worse than you think. You know, especially with the government. When, I, when it dawned on me that they were trying to kill me, right out of high school. I started to not trust him. This was in 64. Meeting the draft. Keith Ferguson was forced out to pasture by the 1990s. His pasture was a rustic wooded estate below downtown Austin, Texas. Some wondered whether Keith's fall from grace was orchestrated by the blues Nazis who ran this town. Ferguson was founding bass player of the fabulous Thunderbirds and the Tailgaters, and was the bassist of many Texas virtuosos in their formative years, including Johnny Winter, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and Junior Brown. He did an album with Carlos Santana. His last band around 1992 was a local blues band in Austin, the Solid Senders. Fronted by the singing dishwasher, they rarely worked, and Keith would only play cities south of Austin, or Amsterdam. Sane drug laws, hardly any cops, crime, poverty, or AIDS... Keith did his last tour there and pined to return. If I hustled up some job washing dishes in Amsterdam, we'd be back in a shot, he said. And Keith Ferguson was also a pachuco to the bone. The Ferguson estate is verboten to some in Austin, like Castle Dracula. It was 1993 when the following conversations were recorded, and Keith Ferguson's closest allies were his grandma and a beautiful old pioneer woman, Mrs. Alberta McKnight, across the road. Keith and the two 92-year-old girls form an unlikely alliance of environmental defense against land developers and the erratic behavior of Keith's mother. His mother lives in a little house on the estate behind the trees, What was that like, living with Mother? Hell, said Keith. She's been trying to evict me for eight years. Ma Ferguson filed surreptitious complaints against their neighbor, Mrs. Alberta McKnight. Mrs. McKnight had lived on her own property since 1910. Austin developers were out to get her remaining five acres, so she strung barbed wire around her land. She resisted real estate goons, who tried to convince her the land was better suited for a strip shopping center. Once, when some aggressive developers intruded on her property, 
She came out with a 12-gauge shotgun and fired. Keith heard the shot and ran out to her aid dressed as an Indian, wielding a machete. I saw the smoking shotgun in the crook of her arm, he said. She rigged up the barbed wire so it would boomerang viciously toward whoever stepped through. There were chunks of clothes, skin and blood all over the fence. I guess that barbed wire did the trick, she cackled. Keith loves his grandmother, Effie Lou, who was born in 1900. He spent idyllic summers in San Antonio with her as a boy. Keith's grandmother wants him to inherit and preserve the property. But my mother keeps her in a vegetative state, he said, pointing to another small house off-limits to all. She keeps her locked inside, feeds her one soft-boiled egg a night. That's all. Tells her if she leaves the house, gangs will get her. My grandmother finally signed a huge stack of legal documents making my mother legal executor, and my mother's top priority is to evict me, said Keith. Well, do you get any royalties from anything, music-wise, to, to this day? Not enough to get cigarettes. I got a check the other day, a big one. It was $3.22. And then, then I got a letter from Bud Music saying that I owe them money. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure you've had a separate check immediately. Yeah. yeah. You know, the music business, um, everyone connected with the music business gets, it's, it surprised me how vividly they become whenever money comes up. There's all kinds of people in the that come to the fore that will, uh, uh, take care of the money for you. you know, managers and whoever gets points off the records and stuff. You know, all of a sudden, they did something that uh, they should be paid for and you shouldn't. You know, the fact that you played it uh, doesn't matter. Yeah. And they feel justified in doing it. Okay? And they'll get angry. You know. Well, he should have looked out for himself. You know, that kind of crap. Bats hang upside down in a tree box Keith built. Hard luck animals, as well as people, find solace on the Ferguson estate. I was in the market for a sick cat without a tail, said Keith, so I got one, a female named Bill. Sure enough, a dog with one eye strolls over to play with Bill. And Keith said, Cats began disappearing in our neighborhood, and I eventually noticed one of my mother's cats disappeared. Then, late one night, I saw my mother stuffing another cat into a box. As the cat was fighting to get loose, a walking stick comes down across her back and knocks her to the ground. It was my grandmother. If you ever put that cat in a box again, I'll whoop this across your face. It wasn't until Keith's mid-twenties, he told me, that he found out who his father really was. John William Ferguson, a concert pianist with the Chicago Symphony, 
I never even knew he was a musician, Keith told me. You ass wipe, he told the maestro during their next encounter. I've been beat, ripped off a thousand times playing clubs. There's so much you could have taught me. After the Thunderbirds tore up the Houston Juneteenth Festival, being the only white band there, they received a four-page spread in the Houston Post. From then on, Keith's father began showing up at Thunderbirds gigs. I hear you knocking. I hear you he would point me out to his friends, my son, the rock star. He picked up girls at our shows. Johnny Winter and ZZ Top sent their limos for him to attend concerts. After I left the T-Birds, I never heard from him again. Here Keith recounts a fight he had with his father when he was a boy. He didn't live with us, and he would be called whenever I was deemed unmanageable. You got to talk to him, John. So your dad would come over, <laughs> and then suddenly try and be your father all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Well, he uh, pulled me out of a chair by my hair. And, uh, was this at a barber shop? No, this was in my living room. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I cut him. And, uh, What'd you have on you? Uh, a metal rat tail comb with the end bended. Into a hook. And I was trying to get to the my room for something better, and uh, he knocked me out. What was in the room? A knife. Yeah. What kind of knife did you have? A big Italian spike, like everybody did. It was a nasty scene. What'd you cut? In the throat. I was a little off. Keith's father lived until 1992. He only showed up when Keith needed to be disciplined. The man was so remote, Keith told me he never even knew his father was a professional musician. After he cut his father, Keith ran to his bedroom and escaped out the window. He went to a crash pad above an ice house where his Mexican gang hung out, a place where they drank, smoked, and huffed paint from a paper bag. I showed up and I was, I'd been out of shape on the side of my face. So they decided to kill him. The teenage Pachucos and Keith's Mexican gang decided to kill Keith's father when they saw his bruised face. Keith had to talk fast and hard to convince them not to. He knew they'd all go to prison. Well, these guys from the neighborhood just, you know, they just call it, you know, sexta, you know, the sixth, sixth ward. What were their names? Mando, Mario, you know, Marisada, you know, things like that. And Parrot, you know, and, you know, he got killed. <laughs> what happened to him? He tried to cross the street. Couldn't have done that, man. <laughs> So he stayed on the porch. <laughs> but yeah, he got killed. And uh, most of them got killed in the war. So they were very patriotic kids. Well, we were drafting kids uh, out of my school with a gang history into the Marines. It was either that or go to jail. And uh, they were the perfect cannon fighter because uh, it was a perfect chance for them to become Americans.
you know, they think if they fight, you know, for their country, that they'll be okay. They don't realize that they'll come back with one leg and they're still Mexicans. They don't realize they'll come back with one leg and they're still Mexicans. Atención, Estados Unidos, México, Europa y todo el mundo. Aquí están para ustedes esos reyes del ritmo, esos meros leones de los blues, esos fabulosos Thunderbirds. Pues ahorita nos vamos a divertir y get down everybody. Here, Keith breaks down the basics of Kahlo, the street language he spoke as a boy, among the Mexican gangs he grew up with in the Sexto, the Sixth Ward in 1950s Houston. Kahlo? Yeah, kind of a sort of a Mexican-American Yiddish sort of. Kahlo? How do you spell it? C-A-L-O. It's uh, coming from Pachuco. Where are Pachuco? Guys, uh, I guess you used to call them Catrines, you know. It's like a gentleman, a real dapper sort. A male in these finest plumage. Real sharp guys. And hello is, a, is like a bastardization language. Uh, English and Spanish? Uh-huh. And they wanted something that only they could understand. And he spoke that. And that's those Pachitos. And uh, they started it. In America? Around El Paso in the late 30s. Automobile, is carrucha. To be an asshole is like goleando. Uh, shirt is camisa, but we would say lisa. That's the way that works. Who are they trying to hide from? Their parents? Or what we would call galachados. Uh, galacho is a white person. And it's mildly derogatory. But a galachado is the most pitiful thing. That's those poor pukes that think that if they act white, they're going to be white. They think that if they're Americanoid enough, that they're going to get a piece of the pie, as it were, and like an Uncle Tom. Yeah, like a Spanish Uncle Tom. Yeah. It's called a galachado. Chicano used to be like nigger. You know that word? You'd say that. Uh, lower class, you know, Mexicans referred to themselves that way. Mr. Chicano? Yeah. What's the difference between Tejanos and Chicano? Nothing. Chicano is always Mexican. Yeah. It's not Puerto Rican or Asian. Always. Yeah, to me, you know, we always made a definite uh, distinction between banana fryers and us. wasn't. What's a banana fryer? Uh, Puerto Rican, you know. That's just a, a flip turn, you know. Some Austin musicians avoid the Ferguson Ranch for fear of having their car commandeered for a barrio run. During one visit, it is my job to drive him to some urgent destination. Though banished from the Antones Blues community, Keith is highly received in the Mexican ghetto, like some kind of shaman. He was raised in the Sexto, or Sixth Ward, a barrio of Houston, the odd Anglo in a Mexican gang back in San Jacinto High, class of 64. Keith directs my car through dusty roads in the barrio, 
Somewhere in these hills, beneath Austin, remained the last of the old Pachucos, time-honored Mexican families who dealt heroin to Texas Hill Country junkies for decades in relative peace until the era of crack arrived. The old-timers were overwhelmed, their quaint Norman Rockwell-era heroin days over. Colombians moved in with machine guns. Keith describes the current transitional wars, directing me through a Mexican shanty town. We finally reach a tin shack. Keith has been summoned to visit an old friend's dying boy. At least that's what I'm told as I wait outside in my spanking new white Honda Accord. Sure enough, 15 minutes later, Keith emerges. A worried madre and padre follow, gratefully embracing him for paying his respects. This is Texas, not Mexico. Why wasn't the boy in a hospital, I ask. They prefer their own medicina, he says. Who looks down on who? Uh, anybody that's alive and looks down people that are dark. That's what all minorities tend to be. All my life I've seen this. Color, yeah. spectrum. You have your poison niggers, you know. That's the real dark ones when I was a kid. What? Poison niggers. I never heard that. That's what? That's what they call the dark ones. And then they used to call the darker Mexicans, Indios, you know, Chicanos. You know. And they call themselves, you know, La Gente Decente. Decent people. The lighter ones? Yeah. That died out pretty much in the late 60s. I hope it's not coming back like that. A lot of other hideous practices seem to be. I always stopped by Keith's place after a Saturday night gig in Austin. A festive trio of German blues fans have also made a pilgrimage one Sunday. But no live music plays in this household. Keith's basses are all in the hawk shop. Horst, Otto, and Gretchen are starstruck before Texas Blues royalty, as Keith signs a few fab Thunderbirds albums. The left-handed 52 Fender Precision bass that Europeans remember him by is long gone. Keith soberly inspects the festering tattooed arm of a young Chicano nodding out on his couch. Gotta clean out that abscess, he advises shaking the fellow. You can die. Old hombres in tank top undershirts are always present. They slink in and out from another zone. Retired bullfighters, he tells the tourists. The old men study a black phone. They sit and wait and watch. Then the phone rings once. Keith disappears with them in a supernatural eye blink. No one says goodbye, ever. How come you get all these magazines? I know you stay in a lot, but you got a lot of pop magazines and Rolling Stone and time. People give them to me. Really? Like a dentist's office. Yeah. People give them to me. <laughs> you know, this friend of ours just gave us a, his subscription to the Rolling Stone. Well, for instance, I don't look at Rolling Stone and I cut it out of my life a long, many, many years ago. I just want to see how the rest of us turned out. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. I want to know what the rest of us are thinking now that we're into this uh, hysterical society and people that were in 
friends are having a lot of fun, and now not. I like to know what they're thinking. I'd rather know than not know what they're going to do next. You never want them. I guess we do that. Us against them. Was Keith embittered by the corporate takeover of music or by the blues fascists who ran Austin and banished him from their scene? Well, how could anyone not be if they chose to live by the heroin needle? One of the rare gentleman junkies who lived by his own rules upon a rustic estate and didn't drive, yet maintained an open house for animals, reptiles, and beautiful losers. As we're talking in 1993, Junior Brown just broke out with his brilliant throwback country music style. Keith used to hire Junior on pickup gigs in the 70s, but Junior apparently tried to rip off Keith's favorite Mexican bajo sexto luthier, Guadalupe Reyes, who also does instrument repairs. This guy's a real, not one of the last artisans left in the country. He'll make you a bottle of sex stuff. What's his name again? Up in a week. What's his name again? Guy Guadalupe Reyes. Huh? He'll make you a bottle of sex stuff in a week. for $300. Junior got him down a little. Yeah. <laughs> that asshole. And um, he said it was better than before it was broken. That's what you... I mean, look at this, man. It's better than before it was busted. <laughs> Since he came over here. He had that yeah. one. Bragged on what he'd done to Mr. Brady. I'd be ashamed to tell him when I fucked a guy like that up. He's completely outrageous. No, no scruples at all. I didn't know that. He thinks being with Jesus makes it okay. You call him a puto. What did he say? What is he? Oh, you know, he was backing up by then. You know, I mean, I was ready to beat him up. He made me mad in the morning. Get mad thinking about it. Junior Brown was living in a 52 Cadillac back then when Keith was in the Thunderbirds. This old Mexican biker family gave an outdoor party they wanted Keith to play. Now keep in mind there are always friends on Keith's porch who you hear in the background. The Machado family. And they said, get a band, you know. We're going to be out on 51st and Maynard at Hobo Joe's Barbecue. Get a band. I go out there and there's a million of fucking bikes and low riders and and I got a band, Richard Alexander, he's Doug Simon Farrell's old drummer. And then Rocky Morales, the tenor player, weird guy. Yeah, great player. And then Junior and me. It was great. Junior wanted to take it on the road. We ought to get us a power trio. You know. Keith Ferguson has trouble getting stopped by police for some reason. Maybe for the 17 individual lizard tattoos snaking up and down his right arm. Or for his glistening, we don't need no stinking badges, gold tooth. His born cynical sneer. Cops were put on earth to make life miserable for Keith, a once studly rocker who now resembles a withering Aztec Indian, a poster boy of ethnic suspicion. Getting into Mexico was no problem, but it was coming home through American customs that sometimes tripped him up. What are the uh, names of those cities that you go to, towns you go to in Mexico? San Miguel de Allende and Paracho Michoacan is where they make guitars and stringed instruments. There's a lot of tourists there, but they don't, you know, they don't fuck it up. There's all these, you know, you get up in the morning to keep driving. There's all these dead burros and you know, a couple of dead oxen you know, on the side of the road because there's no shoulder. And these people just move on down the uh, highway in the middle of the night. You know, you don't have a reflector on your burro's ass. 
They lost the, the only people that drive at night are truckers, criminals, and police. I'm more afraid of the police. So you're putting your ass on the line every time you go down there. Well, it sounds like more so every time you come back. Well, Americans are convinced that everyone's bringing back tons of gold. Or if you're stupid enough to tell them that you've got a plane to catch. Well, they know you have a plane to catch if you're there. Believe me, don't ever tell them you do. You might as well just arrest yourself. You know, if, you, you know, if they feel like it, they'll search you no matter what. You know, and they want to try out the new dog or something like that. Like when I came back the first time on Christmas from Mexico. And they were just hoping that I had a plane to catch, you know, which I did. But, you know, it's Christmas Eve. You know, so they were dying to you know, incarcerate someone on Christmas Eve, but they couldn't find it. I almost felt sorry. So then they go on to the next pool faster. Keith says he left Houston around 1972 primarily to get away from the cops. But 20 years later, the Austin Police Department seemed to reign tyranny upon poor musicians. Avoiding the highway patrol is one reason Keith doesn't drive. You want the legendary Ferguson on your gig, you gotta come fetch him. Here's his take on the Austin club scene in 1993. Well, the Houston Police Force is a primary reason we can't. And now, in 20 years, they've managed to become like Houston was. This is an artistic center. People come here to have fun, to recreate, to learn things and stuff. People like that. They're intellectuals, you know, they're easy to beat up. It's the police mentality, see, this is the live music capital of America, you know. So what do the police do? They prey on the musicians that work on 6th Street, which is where all the tourists come to see all this live music. They had a meeting with said musicians in the club in parties once, not too long ago, but last year. And they said, well, all you got to do is put a card in the back of your car window saying that you work at such and such a place. And they immediately ticketed or towed off every car in those cars. It's like, let's eat ourselves. We're the live music capital of the world, as long as you don't turn to play. You know, go to work. Load or unload your equipment. Let's eat ourselves. We're the live music capital of the world. As long as you don't come to play, or work, or unload your equipment. Twenty years after his death, there's a Facebook page for Keith, El Mero Guero Ferguson, where his fierce admirers go. As a bassist, a savage, dry wit, and a pillar of Pachuco style. That's Keith on bass, with the tailgaters in the background. We'll be back next week with part two. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. Visit the podcast website at blackcracker.fm.